G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter U.org. I'm Jono and joining me, of course, is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, author of The Moses Scroll. That's themosesscroll.com. It's the website. Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hey, Jono. How are you? I am just... It, it, it's never ending. Like, we're, we're going to get to it eventually in this program. <laughs> we say <laughs> that. We plan to. We, we intend to. We, we plan to, but it's just... This 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 document never ends to blow our minds, and we we you know off air in the discussion leading up to this particular program that we're doing right now, uh, we came across something that just went wow. Anyway, yep. we are going to get to it, dear listener. We're picking up where we left off. Oh, is there any news in Moses Scroll Land? Do you want to share anything with us? Well, I I do have to tell the listeners if they were following this exciting day by day through August eighteen eighty three on the blog. Stay with me. I have some makeup to do, but it's for good reason. I have a good excuse. We had a hurricane hit. We were without power. Mm. And right about the time where I'm getting to uh, August 27th, 28th, you know, we lose power. So anyway, I couldn't do the end of August, so I'll catch up on the blog. Uh, But the blog is going well. Research is going well. Not only are we doing research on the scroll text itself, but I'm also researching for this uh, Moabitica scandal and uh, finding all sorts of things on that. So I'm oh, looking yeah. forward to, to catching up. But if somebody out there, if anyone is trying to follow along, they probably said, what happened? You know, August 27th was the last post. We're ready. We're hey, going to get back into it. Yep. Speaking of the of the Moabitica affair, can I, can I ask you a quick question about sure, that? Sure, sure. Because we haven't spoken about this, but I saw James, James Tabor, G'day, James. Yeah, James. Um, hey. Holding, holding a, a piece of the Moabitica um, that was part of the collection sold by uh, Shapira, you know, back in the 1800s. Um, it, it looked to me like a stone head and and uh, a bust. Yep. And it was. It, it looks like quite quite the work, like the, the work of a of a true artist. But it's understood to be not authentic. And when I say it, not it authentic, is. not not. Yeah. It, it, it is a fake. Is it? It, it is considered to be a fake. There were two types of uh, two types of Moabitica. There were a certain number of stone objects, like you saw James holding, and mm. and those are considered now to be the work of a certain stone. Uh, I don't know craftsman. I guess in Israel at the time. Uh, he had been busted. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and but quite that, talented though it, yeah, is all I'm saying. Like yeah. e- even that, in by itself, it's um, uh, it's clearly the work of uh, someone with skill. Uh, is this is this part of the collection of Shimon Gibson? Did Shimon lend, it is. lend this it, to? It, it ah. absolutely is. In fact, I, I will it. say that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that hasn't been quite firmed up yet. But in addition to the project that I'm working on, the book that I'm going to hopefully come out with as soon as possible is on the Moabitica scandal because I'm believing, not based on just a whim, I think I have good evidence that initially a lot of the original pieces were authentic and we're going to be fully investigating that. There were clearly some forgeries in the mix. I promise you that. Mm. I know that. Mm. We know that for a fact. But we believe that uh, that initially the original finds could very well prove to be authentic. And here's the good news. We know where mm. those are, or at least some of them. And we're going to be going, while we're in Israel, we're going to be investigating some of those very uh, pieces that, that we think might have been authentic. That and we'll, we can put them through testing cool. now. So anyway, but we have lots of evidence. We have I'm going through now, just like with the Moses Scroll, we have letters, we have books that were written on this affair. Books that were written, mm. Jono. Uh, in German, by the way. So we're going to have to do some translation. We're working on all that right now. This story, the Moabitica scandal, is going to be as edge of the seat as the Moses Scroll story, every bit as. I mean, it's fascinating. Every day I'm uncovering new information on that. So I'm looking forward to this. And in a couple of... 
in a couple of weeks. You and Dave and, uh, Dave and Patty Tyler are on your way to Germany to what do a little bit more research in this regard as well. We are. We are. We're going to go to places right. where the scroll was, and, and I can't wait to fill you in on that. The end of September, we'll be in Germany, God willing. We're going to Berlin. We're going to Leipzig. We're going uh, to so Halle cool. University. And so everything's, jealous. yeah, man, it's getting, it's getting good. It's getting fun. <laughs> Don't get me started on being stuck here in Australia. I mean, there's worse places to be, obviously, but oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I would, I'd love to travel. I want to get back to Israel. Anyway, let's not do that. We're here reading the Moses Scroll. Uh, we left off, let me just recap. We left off uh, with the Shema. Now, the Shema, of course, comes before the Decalogue. The Shema comes before the Ten Words That's in right. the Moses Scroll as opposed to afterward in Deuteronomy. And this is the way that it reads in the Moses scroll. It says, Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, Elohim Eloheinu, Elohim Echad. Uh, Elohim, our Elohim. Elohim is one. And you shall love Elohim, your Elohim, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, very exceedingly. And these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be upon your heart and taught incisively to your children. And you shall speak of them when you sit down in your house, uh, when, when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and it will be as bands between your eyes and you shall write them on the door frames of your house and your gates. That's where we got up to last week. Yep. And uh, it continues from there. It says it, it, it uh, where we're about to go now begins with because. So why should we do all of those things for us? Well, because mm -hmm. Elohim, and this is in the Moses scroll, we're continuing on now, because Elohim made a covenant with you in Horeb on the day of the assembly. And I, this is Moses speaking, right? And I, I stood between Elohim and you at that time because you were awestruck by the face of the fire and you did not go up to declare the word of your Elohim to you saying, and then it goes on to the 10 words. Now, before we get there, there's an enormous amount. There is. Right there in just that those couple of verses right there. Where do you want to begin? Well, I think I, think I want you to explain what you discovered. And I think that this is very good on this parenthetical piece that's in there. Uh, and, and, and that is that within this phrase, there appears to be something parenthetical, something that interrupts the flow because it, it's, we know that God spoke these words from the midst of the fire on the day of assembly, but then you have Moses standing in the middle. Tell, tell the listeners what you came up with and let's, this, let's talk about this. That. As you know, as you know, uh, because I've been torturing you with this for many, many months, this was a problem for me, uh, this particular piece and uh, and I'll explain to the listeners why. One of my favorite verses, in fact, I've been declaring for many years now that it is my very favorite verse in the Pentateuch, Ross, is Exodus 19, verse 9. Yep. And uh, Exodus 19, 9, I'm just paraphrasing. Uh, God says to Moses, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to the people audibly and really freak them out. And I'm doing this because uh, in doing so, they will believe in you, Moses, forever. Yeah. In other words, they'll they'll follow. So uh, there's something about a uh, a revelation narrative that is experienced by a people, as opposed to a revelation narrative that is private. In other words, it was revealed to one person, and that one person then declared it to a bunch of people. So, right. for example. <clears throat> Uh, we've often, we often talk, we're not picking on the Mormons. Well, we are, we're picking on the Mormons. I'm picking on the Mormons. Um, Joseph Smith received a, um, a revelation, yep. a private revelation. And, uh, and he in turn went, uh, charismatic chapter he is and really sold this idea, this revelation that he received to a people. And today we have the Mormons as a result. Um, that's a private revelation. Right. And in right. fact, if, if you go yeah. to uh, pretty much every single revelation narrative, whether it be Paul on the road, of Damas uh, road to Damascus or whether it be 
and Muhammad and, and his the, the dream and the horse and da, 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 whatever it might be, we're talking about, uh, invariably talking about a private revelation um, to an individual who, with some uh, charismatic ability, then goes and sells that to a people and they, they run with it. They go, I believe what you're saying. Yep. You obviously had something happen to you. You, ex- you had an experience. You had a personal experience and you really seem convincing to us. So we're just we're going to run with that. But there's a difference between that and a people saying, this is something we experienced. This is something that we heard. This was an overwhelming experience, so much so that we thought we were going to die. Yep. And this is what we have in, well, we have it in the, pen, in, in the, the uh, you know, Exodus and, and Deuteronomy. We also have that here in the Moses scroll, as we've already outlined. That's really the way that it begins. So... No, that's Ross. an that's an excellent point. It's a corporate revelation, and I because you and I are friends, and you've made this point to me over and over. Exodus nineteen nine is one of those texts which demands people ought to pay heed because here you have, like you said, a corporate revelation. What are the chances that an entire people, you know, if you if you say it's a a, a singular person who heard this, then you know you have to believe that person. But what are the chances that an entire people could make up a story like this? Now, it's consistent in the Hebrew Bible, too. You you were in mm-hmm. Exodus 19.9. Look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Uh, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying... So it's mm. it's not that the words are whispered to Moses and then he communicates them. It's clearly that God speaks all these words. And the same thing is relayed in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy 5.19. It says, uh, these words, uh, Hashem or Jehovah spoke to all your assembly in the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. So it's, you, you you can't get around the fact that the people heard the voice of God. That's mm. the point. That's the key. I love mm. that. That's absolutely the claim in the Moses scroll. It's absolutely the claim in the in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And yet, Ross, there is a problem, and that is Deuteronomy five verse five, which uh, is uh, representative of the Moses scroll, where both here in the Moses scroll and in Deuteronomy five five, it seems to be saying that Moses stood between the people and Elohim to declare to them the words of Elohim. And then we're, we're, we're going, well, hang on, wait a minute. Now, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 5, scholars have often pointed at this and gone, ah, you see, we have a, there's a discrepancy here. Yeah. Uh, did did Moses speak it to them? Or did um, is this another is this a private revelation? Because over here in Exodus or, or elsewhere in Deuteronomy, it's certainly suggesting um, in no uncertain terms that, God spoke to the people and they heard the voice. Yep. The overwhelming evidence uh, in in the text um, shows that that is the case. So then what is going on here in 5.5? And this drove me mad because up until this point, Ross, the Moses scroll solves all the problems. You know, we're, we're seeing in, uh, in the academic world, scholars are always pointing at, oh, look, here's a contradiction here in the Pentateuch. Here's a contradiction there in the Pentateuch. This doesn't gel with that. This doesn't make sense here. This is out of place. This is added later. We have all of these things, but we all of those problems are solved in the Moses scroll. So when we got here yep. to this very point, uh-huh. it really messed with my head, and I tortured you with it for so long. <laughs> and uh, and I I you know I like to solve these problems. I like, I do. And so I thought, how is this possibly solved? And uh, uh, and it, particularly the phrase to declare the word of your Elohim to use as if Moses was the one who was the conduit of the words. Okay, so the problem is, uh, as I already mentioned, is that it it potentially reframes and dilutes the revelation narrative from a national revelation to a private revelation, that being that um, this single contradiction creates an anomaly in the narrative account uh, in all of the Tanakh, including Exodus and Deuteronomy, obviously, both of which repeatedly affirm a national revelation or a corporate revelation event. So a potential solution, right, and this is the one that I've been running with with for a while, the potential solution to the problem is found in Guta's rendering of EA10. This is the particular line that we're looking at in the mm-hmm. Moses scroll, mm-hmm. as opposed to Ginsburg's um, uh, rendering, which is what we just read, uh, which concurs, by the way, with Shapira's 
uh, transcription attempt. Now, just just to bring everyone up to speed, if they've just tuned in, Ross, Guter, Ginsberg, who, who are these people? What did they do? So Hermann Guter and a man by the name of Edward Meyer, these two German scholars were the first to make a transcription of the, the leather fragments that Shapira brought before the world. So they looked at it. They had five days, roughly four and a half days of work, seven to eight hours a day, where they were looking at the leather strips and producing a transcription of what they saw before them. They looked at it the first week of July 1883. After that, Shapira took the, the strips of leather and went to London, and Ginsburg worked on this. Same strips he worked on for about four weeks. Mm. So we have two separate transcriptions produced in 1883 that yield what we have before us in the book that I published. We actually have the Moses Scroll text. Uh, we can mm. simply go back and look at these. And then additionally now, and one of the things that you and I are studying closely, is that Idan Dershowitz, the Harvard scholar yep. who published a couple of weeks after I did on the scroll, he found uh, a certain portion of the manuscript strips transcribed in Shapira's hands. So now we have Shapira who did this sometime, we think, in 1883. Mm -hmm. We have Guta Ginsberg and Meyer. So now we have three separate transcriptions from 1883, yep. and that's what you and I are looking at as we make these comments. And Guta, in this particular passage that you read, to declare the word of your Elohim to you, saying that particular phrase seems to be, we have to wonder, did Ginsburg and Shapira, did they supply that text, though they didn't actually see it clearly because Guta, in his transcription, didn't quite see what they saw, did he? He didn't see what they saw. Now, it's important to note, um, Shapira makes his transcription. He goes to Germany and he says to, uh, to Guta and Meyer, he says, this is killing my eyes, you guys. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I need someone... To, to take a second look at this and come up with a transcription. They're like, no worries, give us a look. They get on it and uh, and Guter makes a transcription, which is different to Shapira's. Guter, I love this guy. He only writes down what he sees. He doesn't want to know, oh, you know, he doesn't look at the, at the, uh, the, the Pentateuch and go, well, what do I think it might be saying? Well, let me write that down. He doesn't look at Shapira's transcription and go, well, what did you have? Oh, yeah, but that's probably right. I'll just write that down. No. Guter and Maya, they are looking at it and they're going, only the letters that we see with our eyeballs, let's write that down and make a note. Okay, they do that. Then Shapira goes to London, as you, as you mentioned, and he supplies the scroll to Ginsburg. Ginsburg does the same, but he's got four weeks to do it. What he also has, Ross, mm -hmm. is he has Shapira's transcription. He doesn't have Guta's transcription. He has Shapira's. We think. We makes... think he does. We think he does. Oh, we're not sure about that? No, we're not absolutely sure about it. But that's it is a it is an idea that we have because quite often Shapira and Ginsburg, though not always, will agree. Now, what I don't want people to get the idea is that we can't trust the transcriptions because we have all of them. So, for instance, mm. in a line of text, let's say that there were 40 characters, uh, Ginsburg may transcribe 38 of them and then put two letters in a bracket. In other words, he says, look, mm -hmm. I can't read every single one of these letters, but clearly this word is Moshe. Uh, it has a mem, it has part of a sheen, but he puts that in brackets. Whereas Guta and Meyer, they make a commitment from the beginning, it seems, and I've read this in their, their work, that when they cannot with certainty, with absolute certainty, make out a letter, they will, in if they can tell how many characters are there, they will put an asterisk. In other words, if they know that there are two characters, but they can't quite discern what they are, because remember... Mm. The, the letters are sometimes difficult to read depending mm -hmm. on the blackening of the scroll face. Uh, they'll indicate the number of letters. Where they cannot indicate how many letters, they might put dots. 
But when you compare, and I've done this, this document, mm. I have a document uploaded to my academia page that lists line by line, letter by letter, what each of these saw so people can build their confidence in the reliability of the text yeah. in, in our book. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, but, I'm glad. I'm yep. so glad you said that. But what, what we do know for certain is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Ginsberg did not have Goethe's translation, uh, we transcription. Do know that. That we do know that. Okay. And, and we, right. I think with good reason, I think there are times where Ginsberg and, and Shapiro are looking at this together, and Shapiro said, I think... I think this is Deuteronomy 5.5. Look what I have here. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, it's got to be Deuteronomy 5.5. Context tells us. I think there might be some of that, and that this is one of the very few examples where that could have been the case. All right. It, it's it, and it's possible. I can imagine this being possible because you got to bear in mind that uh, here's Ginsburg. He's he's been working on this for weeks. Um, he gets to this line. It's very difficult to read. He may he may have uh, looked at uh, Shapira's transcription and, and may have looked at Deuteronomy five verse five and thought oh, that seems fair enough. Yep. Um, sure, let's put that down because he's about to get into, as I said last week, the crown jewel which, of course, is the 10 words themselves. This is the next thing following this one line. Let's just get this over and done with because I want to see what the 10 words actually say, right? That's right. Um, That is the most exciting part of this uh, document. So maybe, I mean, we're speculating, but this is what Goethe saw. He saw um, in this line, which was difficult to read, making out two words and a letter uh, transcribed as following kol gadol or was it hakol gadol and a tav yep what does it mean ross well it it clearly indicates something now remember that this is a scriptio continua it's it's solid there are no breaks between the words in the actual paleo in the letter Mm. but he breaks the words so that the the phrase he sees is the voice, a great voice, all right? Now, these mm. same letters, broken differently, Gadol, for instance, can occur as Ginsburg and Shapira read it, which yields in English the phrase to declare the word of your Elohim to you, saying, it, depending on where you break the words. I know this is, as you said, hard to follow for listeners, but if they're f- familiar with the Hebrew, they can look at my document online and they can get this and see what we're talking about. Mm. So so he's suggesting, Guta is suggesting, look, it's a fragmentary line, it's difficult to read, but I seem to see, I think what I'm seeing here is something about a great voice or a loud voice. Now that, by the way, Hakol Gadol could be the voice of a trumpet getting louder and louder, which is familiar to us from the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. It could yep, be something. In, in Exodus, yeah. Yep. So it could be something like that there. Uh, but again, Shapira and Ginsburg, uh, they both read this uh, as we stated to declare the word of your Elohim to you, saying, which implies that quite possibly. Maybe it's Moses speaking. But again, we have Exodus 20, verse 1, uh, Deuteronomy 5, 19, Deuteronomy, or Exodus 19, 9. Clearly, it's God speaking and not Moses. Mm -hmm. It's not Moses functioning as an intermediary. That can't be what the Pentateuch is telling us. Everyone heard the voice of God. Now, one other point, Jonah, and then I'm going to let you give them your solution to this. One other thing that needs to be brought up is um, whenever we begin to read the versions, and I use the plural there, the versions of the 10 words in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, we see an interesting thing happen in the canonical text. We see it switch from first person to third person. You need an example. So, for instance, when you get to the part about you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's, it seems like if God is speaking this, he would say, you shall not take my name in vain, mm-hmm. right? But notice the switch. So commentators, and this even occurs in Judaism too, they begin to try to apologize for that. They use apologetics, and they begin to say, well... You know, God spoke the first word, and then after that, Moses takes it from there. 
you know, are various uh, alternatives, but are very similar to that solution. Because they're trying Mm. to explain how is it that the 10 words spoken by God, or is it Moses, how do we switch from first to third person? But but mm. we're gonna ha- we're gonna talk about that when we get to the ten words. I just wanted to introduce that now. Mm, mm, no, absolutely. So, um, a Kol Gadol and a Tav. What could it possibly be? So, uh, some uh, commentators that have looked at this uh, have said, well, obviously, what uh, Guter is um, looking at here could, in fact, be what is represented in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse twenty-two in the in the English or uh, five nineteen in the Hebrew, which says. Uh, these words the Lord spoke to all uh, your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice, that bit right there, mm-hmm. with a loud voice, and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me, yep. Moses is saying in Deuteronomy. Well, if we, uh, bearing in mind, Ross, that that each previous line of uh, of the Moses scroll in EA here, contains an average of uh, eight Hebrew words. We clearly cannot have that that whole verse, if that's what he's looking at. And eliminating the repetition that we see in Deuteronomy 5.5. So, for example, I mean, Moses in in 5.5 has already said, oh, you were freaked out by the the fire and that you were awestruck and you didn't want to go, and all this sort of stuff. We see that in 5.19, you know, that you were, Mm -hmm. you you, the assembly out of the mountain, the fire and, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, we take that out, then it may consist, perhaps speculatively, it may consist of the following, that he proclaimed with a loud voice and wrote on two tablets of stone. Now, wrote on two tablets of stone would account for the tav that that, uh, that Guter sees a little further along in the line, yep, right? Yep, hmm All right. Yep. It's a possibility. Now, if that's the case, then it acts, really, it acts as a, a perfect introduction to the ten words, uh, rather than the concluding verse represented in Deuteronomy. Um, and so that's an interesting thing, and, and it solves it potentially solves the problem of having a verse that's in the Moses scroll, but also in the Pentateuch, seemingly uh, having Moses declare to the people the words like Elohim has spoken to him, the words, and then Moses speaks it to them. Yep. Uh, we know that that's not what's going on. So that's a possibility. It also... Um, it's interesting to note, you know, verses that appear in Deuteronomy that would reduce divine revelation to personal revelation uh, or dilute the potency of divine revelation to um, uh, to a personal revelation narrative. Um, we, we've got quite a few of those, Ross. The, I'll, just, I'll just read to you a couple of those. Okay. We have, um, let's see, Deuteronomy 1, 9 to 18. It says, uh, at that time... I said to you, uh, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that you're too, you're so numerous that it starts with the sky. May the Lord, uh, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear all your problems and your burdens and disputes all by myself? Mm -hmm. Choose some wise, and here it is, choose some wise and understanding and respected men from each of you, and I will set them over you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you answered to me, and you said, oh, this is a good thing. Yeah, we definitely need some some more people over us. Uh, so I took the, uh, the leading men from the tribes, the wise and respected men, and anointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, uh, of hundreds and fifties and tens, and as tribal officials, and I charged your judges at that time to hear disputes between your between uh, your people and 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 judge fairly whether uh, the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing and, and and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it goes and and what we see in this particular passage is that there is a um, uh, it goes from see the thing is is that the the Moses scroll, the 10 words, as I've mentioned before, is a libertarian document. We're about to see that. It begins that way. Uh, and, it, and, and what it's really saying to the people is, here are 10 rules that I want you to abide by. Here are 10 matters that you need to keep in mind and foremost in your mind so that you can live among one another in the freest way possible. Mm-hmm. It is coming from me as the highest authority 
possible. These are the 10 things that you need to keep in mind. You are in charge of your own uh, uh, situation. And we don't have this uh, um, uh, Deuteronomy 1, 9 to 18 in the Moses scroll. It's absolutely absent. Yeah. Um, Deuteronomy 5, 23 to 27. When you heard the voice, as Moses speaking, when you heard the voice out of the darkness, uh, while the mountain was ablaze with fire and all your leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me and you said, the Lord, our God, has shown us his glory and his majesty and all that we have heard from the voice of the fire today, we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? You go near and listen to all that the Lord uh, your God says. And then and then you tell us whatever the Lord your God tells you and we will listen to and obey. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another verse that is absent, another passage that is absent in the Moses scroll where the people, uh, if you like, <laughs> seemingly surrendering a little bit of their liberty for some security. Where have we heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's that. Um, it goes on. So uh, further to that, Deuteronomy 5, uh, 30 and 31, this is in the English, um, God is um, uh, apparently speaking to Moses here saying, go and tell the, tell the people, return to their ten- tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands and all of the decrees and and uh, and the laws that you are to teach them uh, to follow in the land that I am giving them to possess. So in other words, I've given, they've heard a little bit, they're, they're freaked out. Now tell them to go away and I'll give you the rest of it. And it will be a private revelation to you and you will convey it to them. That's missing from yeah. the Moses scroll, Ross. Yeah. It's and, not and there. One thing to add to this is that it's a little bit confusing in the canonical text because, like, for instance, in Deuteronomy 5, it says, God spoke the words from Sinai, from the, or from Horeb, actually, from the midst mm. of the fire. And, and one of the things that it says very clearly is, and he added no more. It was like, that's what he spoke. No more. There was nothing else. And so yeah. people begin to look at these texts, and they go, well, well, it says there was nothing more. But then later he tells Moses... So what you're drawing out of the Moses scroll is that all of those cases where there is a bit of private uh, revelation going on, they're always absent in the Moses scroll, right? Mm, they're always absent. So when we come to this particular one where uh, where, it, where it's, it seems to be saying uh, that Elohim speaks to Moses, Moses is between the people, and then Moses you know, speaks to the people what Elohim is saying, it doesn't fit. It, it's, uh, it's an anomaly. And it needs to be solved. So if if we run with Guter's uh, transcription, then maybe what and I'm saying if, because this is speculative, with all of this in mind, it, it may render the passage as something like this. Elohim made a covenant with you in Horeb on that day of the assembly. And I, I stand between Elohim and you at this time because, uh, or I stood between Elohim and you at, at that time because you were awestruck by the face of the fire and you did not go up. He proclaims with a loud voice and wrote on two tablets of stone. And then you have the 10 words. Okay. So that's a possibility. And I had to tuck myself into bed with that and, uh, and try and sleep peacefully. But as I mentioned just then, it, it is absolute speculation. We don't know for sure. Guter wasn't able to read it all. He had great difficulty with the passage. It just allows the possibility of an alternative. Now wait, let me alternatively. Let me, wait, yeah. let me jump in real quickly here. One of the things that that I hope people understand, if you get any book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the things that you'll see is brackets, and and what that is is that these ancient texts often, when they're discovered, there might be a portion of the text that's unreadable as we're dealing with what Guta came across. Uh, in this particular portion of the scroll, there might be a hole, there might be a portion of the scroll that's been eaten away. So a lot of these Dead Sea Scroll books, like if you get any of the ones like Geza Vermish or uh, any Martinez or any of these guys who produce manuscripts or books about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they'll have this. So I love the fact that we're dealing with a scroll that is not in total 
like represented, easily easily read. You know what I'm saying? In other mm. words, this mm. lends to the fact that this was actually discovered in a cave in Moab, mm. and it's very ancient, and so parts of it might be difficult to read. Parts of it might be eaten away yeah. over time. Okay, so Absolutely. but you you found something else that I think is interesting. Well, and I only it it only just pops into my head because uh, in preparation for this program, I thought, well, I better revisit all my notes here, and this is a particularly um, complicated passage that needs to be talked about in some detail, and I'm just going over those details, and then it just pops into my head. Um, what if? What if Moses is just throwing in some information? He's telling, he's recounting something to the people, and he's and he's saying to them, "Oh, by the way, uh, now what I mean by that, I'm going to go back to the text here. So it says, uh, because Elohim made a covenant with you in Horeb on the day of the assembly, and then he continues, and I, I stood between Elohim and you at that time because you were awestruck by the face of the fire and you did not go up, and then it continues to say." to declare the word of your Elohim to you, saying. And I thought, oh, I miss, I'm, <laughs> I need to look at the, the, the larger context here. Is it possible that Moses is connecting the first part of that with the last part of that, and the middle of it is actually just him interjecting, saying, oh, and by the way, I had to stand between you and Elohim at that time because you were awestruck by the face of the fire, and you did not go up. So in other words, um, is it possible that and I, I stood between Elohim and you at that time because you were all struck by the face of the fire and you did not go up, should be grammatically bracketed uh, in parentheses. Um, this would then connect Elohim made a covenant with you in Horeb on the day of the assembly with to declare the word of your Elohim to you saying, and that would make perfect sense. Now, now I, I thought, I by the that? way, do you want to put yes, that in a different? Yeah, no, let me just, let me put something in here. When you first brought this up to me, I thought, you know, I don't know that, that that's not pushing things a little bit too far, making something fit. And so I, I did. I pushed back on that initially, as you recall. But but then you said, now, wait a minute, let's think about this. And we started looking at the way that other translations handle this and tell them what you, you found. Yeah, I did. Okay. No, well, you found it. Well, you you said so, to me where we're talking about this, and I'm I'm thinking I'm just wondering if it's permissible in the Hebrew. Is it grammatically permissible to understand it this way in the Hebrew? And all of a sudden, you went, "Hang on, wait, whoa!" And, and our our favorite <laughs> translation, of course, is the uh, the Koran. Yep. And you said, "Have you got your Koran in front of you?" I said, oh, "Yeah, I do." And you said, oh, man, you've got to open it up and look at Deuteronomy 5, verse 5. Tell us what you found. So here's what I found. In Deuteronomy 5, 4, it says, The Lord talked with you face to face in the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, comma, parentheses. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up to the mountain, close parentheses, saying... So what the translator of the Koran says is that just what you just pointed out, that it first mentions that God made a covenant with them at Horeb on the day of the assembly. Then there's this parenthetical statement by Moses, and oh, by the way, I stood between God and you because you were scared to go up. But then it goes back to the idea that God made the covenant declaring the words saying and so mm. and it's not just so, in the Koran. you found it in other translations as well well because i hadn't even thought to do that because it had only just popped in my head you were quick to do that and i thought oh well let me see you know another go-to uh is the uh, i've got the new oxford annotated bible the new revised standard version and i thought i wonder what is this i grabbed it off the shelf and i opened it up lo and behold it's in parentheses as well and we both just thought, well, that's got to be the simplest solution. And what and the difference is, uh, what what that does is instead of the last word being Moses saying that I stood between to declare to you the word of Elohim, what it's saying is that Elohim, right, yep. uh, made a covenant with you in Horeb on the day of assembly to declare the word of your Elohim to you saying. That's it right. It makes perfect sense because it's Moses recounting it. 
uh, and it flows beautifully. And I tell you what, that's the simplest solution, and I think we've got to stick with it. What do you think? I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it, like I said, I pushed back initially, but now that I look at it in the Hebrew, it clarifies, it brings out, and it aligns with everything that we know from the Pentateuch, from the Moses scroll, that God is speaking the words and not Moses. It's not as if God speaks... I am the Lord your God, and then Moses says something, you know, back and forth, which is the way that most people have tried to explain this in the past, that that's what prepares us for what is about to come, and I think it's absolutely amazing because what we're going to look at is the a unique set of the ten words. Now, if we're mm. ready, when we're ready, I wanted to bring up a couple of points about what the listeners are about to hear, because I think it's essential to point out some of these things. Can I get into this a little bit? Oh, yeah. So we're finally here. Go for it. All right. So so first of all, popularly, as everyone knows, these are called popularly the Ten Commandments because of three verses, Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 4, 13, and Deuteronomy 10, 4. Can I just, let me me interrupt because I want to, I want to emphasize that. There are only three verses that identify that there are 10 words or 10 matters. That's or ten, right. 10 things. Only three verses. This is the reason why we understand that there are 10 is because there are three verses that in, in no uncertain terms identify that there are 10. That's go, right. Go Ross. That's right. And, and by the way, these three verses, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 10, actually have the word 10 in the Hebrew. Now, the word, mm. we, we say the phrase 10 commandments, but in all three of those passages in the Hebrew, and most people who listen to your show probably know this, it doesn't say 10 commandments. It says the 10 words, the 10 mm. matters, the 10 things. It's aseret adevarim, the 10 mm. words, okay? Now, the interesting thing about this is that if you look at either the version in Exodus 20 or the version in Deuteronomy 5, it's difficult to determine where the 10 are. Like, how do you break that down? And that's the reason that if you're looking, uh, the Jewish people come up with a certain enumeration of the 10 uh, that doesn't agree with other versions. For instance, the Catholic version has a different 10 uh, the mm-hmm. Protestants have a different 10, and I'm being very generic. There, uh, Anyone can look this up on the web, and you can see charts that show how do different faith uh, groups break down the 10. Yep. Well, the reason that is a problem is because nowhere in there, in any of the, uh, any of the places in these two texts, particularly Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, it didn't come with Roman numerals, so we don't know where to break this down. You know, in other words, there's no there's no clear breaks between uh, commandment to commandment, and all they know all all we know is that there are ten, and therefore this body of text has to somehow be broken down into ten, and it's problematic. There are different solutions depending on the traditions, Ross. Yeah, and and I did a 15-part series on the 10 words sometime back mm. on my Saturday morning show. Really good. And, and really that, good. that was an eye-opener for me as well, because what I wanted to do was, and I didn't know about the Moses scroll uh, at the time when I taught this class, but one thing that I found was that no matter what you look at, whether you're looking at the canonical text or the Dead Sea Scrolls or any any ancient document, even bring in the Nash papyrus, you're you're dealing with an uncertainty as as how do you break down the ten? Obviously, mm. Jewish people say, well, I'm going to go with what they uh, Judaism came up with. Catholic would say, I'm going to go with what, but but none of those have. You can't really put a check mark and say, yep, I see the ten. It's strange mm. the way they come to this. It is strange. So either the solution is either you divide the first commandment into two or you divide the last commandment into two. And we'll, we'll see. We'll explain that as we go and we get into it. But this is the solution for various uh, uh, traditions, Ross. But one of the things that happens that our listeners are going to be privy to now is that one document, Jono, one document in 
all of antiquity shows a very clear indication as to the ten. And it does it Mm. in a couple of ways, and I'm referring to our text that we're about to begin teaching on, and that's the Moses Scroll. In the Moses Scroll, there are a couple of ways that we know how to break down the ten. Number Mm -hmm. one, the scroll, each of the words begins on a new line. Now, let let me clarify. This scroll is written in a continuous script. That means there are no breaks between words uh, mm-hmm. that are that are. In other words, the words are continuously written, letter after letter after letter. There's no break between each word, and uh, so in this particular scroll, a couple of things happen. In in the ten words, each of the words, each of the ten begins on a new line. So you you get word number one, and then when you start word number two, you begin on a new line, regardless of how much of the scroll, the width of the fragment column is taken up. Clearly, it starts now, now the, on a new line. Yep. Sorry to interrupt, but what you're saying is that this, this presents and functions differently to uh, that which we see in the Moses scroll thus far. That's right. That's right. So the, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, uh, has slightly different grammatical uh, uh, rules, it, w- it would appear. Um, and you and I have often speculated, I wonder if this is exactly how it appeared on the Tablets of Stone. We may talk about that a little later, but continue. Yeah, so, so the interesting thing, let me just say this. On the Moses Scroll, we talk about the scroll fragments. There are 16 strips of leather of varying lengths, and, and what's interesting is that when a line is being written, the scribe, whoever it was, would often reach the end of the column and break the word in the middle. It's a continuous mm. string of letters. So the word, if let's use Moses again. If it's Moshe, three letters, Mem, Shin, Hey, that if there's not enough room to get the Hey on that line, the, the next line begins with the Hey of Moshe. So there's no break. It's it you, you just keep on going. But when you get to the ten words, that's not the case. Uh, mm. At least at least in terms of breaking apart uh, the words. I, I started to say commandments, but that's not actually accurate. And and so one of the things that I wanted to point out is in 1883 they had never seen the world had never seen a document that. A, was written on leather in paleo and broke words in the midst of words. That had Mm. not been seen. Now, it was seen on lapidary, on inscriptions like in stone and so forth. That was uh, something that they knew of. In fact, one of the charges was they, these detractors who believed that it was not an authentic scroll said, look, we've never seen... Phoenician or Paleo-Hebrew on leather, and and this act of breaking a word in the middle, that's something you see on stone. Now, here's what we know now. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are 12 leather fragments, uh, 12 leather strips, all of which Mm -hmm. are attributed by context to the words of Moses. In other words, they're Mm -hmm. Torah documents that are written, A, in Paleo. They had never seen anything like this in 1883. They break the words um, sometimes in the middle of a word. That also is the case. Now listen to this. It's only on manuscripts found at Qumran or the Dead Sea Scrolls, as we like to call them. It's only in documents that are written in Paleo on leather and representative of the words of Moses. In other words, a, a, a scroll which is describing a calendar, that's not written in Paleo, and and it doesn't use uh, this breaking of the words. So we see all of these things that we see in the Moses scroll are indicative of the practices of scribes in antiquity who are recording the words of Moses on leather. Okay, and we know that after we, yeah, after. And we know that after eighty, that's right. eighty years after. By the way, eighty years after. That's right. Now, now, one other thing Blows about about these scrolls is uh, another mm. way that we know how to discern 
which of the uh, where to break the commands or where to break the words. Not only do they start a new line, but they end each word of the ten words ends in a phrase in Hebrew, Anok Elohim Elohecha, I am Elohim, your Elohim. Mm. That occurs in that. Now you won't find that in Deuteronomy or in Exodus's version, and that's one of the problems. But with this, each of the words ends with Anok Elohim Elohecha. And then a new line begins, and the new uh, the new word is conveyed. Mm-hmm. Now, one one other thing we've established that the ten words are presented in uh, the Pentateuch and in the Moses Scroll as the words of Elohim. Now, the other thing about this is, if they are the words of Elohim, wouldn't you think that Exodus and Deuteronomy, which both claim to be God speaking, don't you think that they would be um, in the first I, person? In, in the first person, for sure. But also, don't you think they would agree? If you look at Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5's version side by side, you're going to notice differences in wording, differences mm. in vocabulary. They do not agree. In fact, in Exodus, if you count the Hebrew words contained within the 10 word covenant, you come up with 172 words. If you count mm-hmm. Deuteronomy's version, you come up with 189 words. How is that possible? Mm. And, and not I, only that, yep, not only ahead. that, but where they where they switch from being in the first person of God speaking to being in the third person, uh, even that doesn't agree. That's boss. right. That's exactly right, and that creates a lot of questions. And as you alluded to earlier, it brings discredit to the text because of some of these uh, what we would call minimalist scholars who doubt that this ever happened. What you Mm. and I are suggesting is that this event, this watershed event at Horev, Mm. did in fact happen to an entire group, an assembled group, an entire nation of people heard the Mm -hmm. voice of God speaking out of the fire. The question is, what did he say? This version is in the first person. It's communicated clearly in the first person all the way through. One other thing about this text. Up until now, in the Moses scroll, what we see is ever so often there is what's called an interpunct, which Mm. seems, based on context, most often to indicate uh, perhaps maybe a paragraph break or... You know, because remember the the letters, there's no break between the words, and so it's mm. just continuous. But ever so often, you'll see a dot in the center of uh, the string of letters, and that indicates not only the end of a word, but the end of a sentence or the end of a a phrase or a paragraph. When- yeah, it's, it's so. So I mean, we do a similar thing in English. Obviously, we use full stops, right? We put a period at the end of a sentence, which is a, a complete thought, if you like, and. And an interpunct seems to be functioning in a similar way. Is that fair, Ross? That's fair. That's fair. Now listen to okay. this. Uh, the probably the greatest scholar of textual criticism is Emmanuel Tove. Emmanuel Tove, mm. I have in front of me his book called Textual Criticism of the Hebrew Bible by Emmanuel Tove. Listen to this sentence. The overwhelming majority of the Judean text use one of two systems for separating words in Hebrew and Aramaic, employing either word dividers of some kind, mainly dots, you can say interpunks there, in text written in Paleo-Hebrew or spacing between words of the text written in Aramaic script. So one of the things that is interesting, again, they didn't know this in 1883, is that if you want to separate words in paleo, only in paleo documents, in fact, it becomes forbidden in texts that are not written in paleo to use word dividers. It's mm. it, This is only in paleo texts from the ancient world. What is unique about the Moses scroll is that with two small exceptions, and I'll talk about those, up until now, we see an infrequent use of interpunks, but in the ten words, we see interpunks after every single word. It, it, it says, Anok, interpunct. Elohim, 
interpunct. Eloheka, interpunct. After every word, with the exception, two exceptions, whenever uh, the the preceding word is lo, like lo, no, you shall, you shall not. That mm-hmm. that word, the the negative particle and the verb which follows are included as one grammatical unit, and there's no break. So it says. Uh, for instance, you shall not steal. Mm. It's all one word. It's treated as one word. There's no break. There's no interpunct. Uh, they're considered one. The other place is when et, the direct object identifier, occurs before mm-hmm. a noun. So we're familiar with this, not only in the 10 words, but in the beginning of the Bible. It says, Bereshi, bara Elohim, et ha-shemayim, et ha-aretz. So it's it it tells you what did God create? He created the heavens and the earth. Whenever you have et hashemaim, and that occurs in the ten words, they're in, they're treated as one. Now, one of the things mm. that Guta points out, Guta says this strikes me as something which seems original. Mm. Now, what the detractors said at the time was they said we've never seen anything like this. Therefore, it can't be authentic, and, and get this, whoever did this, be it Shapira or whoever, they're trying to replicate what would be on a stone. Now, interestingly enough, and I have two things that I want to say about this, if, if, uh, if I can take just a little more time, this is important. Here's what Guta says when he first saw this. He says, uh, this writing, talking about the continuous script interrupted in the Decalogue with these two notable exceptions, he says, this writing confronts the re- reader as an original feature. It indeed surprised me not a little. And then he talks about how uh, it coincides with what we know about the way these words were treated grammatically as well. And then he said, if you look at, for instance, if you look at the Moabite Stella, or the Siloam inscription, which, remember, the Moabite stella is discovered in 1868. So their mm. original thought was, whoever made this up is just copying off the Moabite stella because they had dots or interpunks between each word. Yeah. And and they, they also had, in 1880, was the discovery of the Siloam inscription. Well, he says that that can't be the copy because... In the Moabite stone, they had them. Um, uh, they had interpunks even between the direct object identifier or the right. negative particle, whereas it doesn't have it here. So whoever did this isn't copying off of that. Mm. Now mm. the other thing is, and I love this. He says, "I find thus no model for the way in which in our manuscript the words of the Decalogue are separated. It should apparently serve to allow this part of Moses's speech." to especially stand out, and by distinguishing every individual word to ensure the survival of it against any changes. Yeah. Or, get this, or do we have a copy of the original written by God himself on the stone tablets before our eyes? There it is. So he thinks, yeah. what if what if the whoever writes this, in the original version, let's say Moses recorded a scroll like we believe he did. Is he representing for us what the original looked like on the stone tablets that mm. God wrote with his finger and gave to Moses? And Guta's answer is, it could very well be that this is supposed to look like, just mm. like it looked like on the stone tablets. I think mm. when I read that in Guta's work, it blew me away. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It, it, it is. And so we have, do you know what? I mean, we've, we've already gone a little bit over time, but we cannot uh, leave it here. We have to give the audience at least the very first line uh, of the decalogue. Can we do that? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's Let's uh, let's preface it by two things. One, we want you to notice that it begins with the phrase Elohim, your Elohim, and at the end of the word, you'll hear 
that same phrase again to show you what word number one is. Read we, well, I don't, word number one. I don't know one. that we're even going to get that far, but I'm going to, I'm going to read um, EB1. This is line EB1 and EB2. Wait, no, um, you can't. Yeah. You, you've got to read the whole word, even if we go back and pick it apart. Okay, we'll do that. It, <laughs> it goes... <laughs> and now, now it begins. Am I right? It begins uh, Anok Elohim Eloheka. Yep. Okay. Anok Elohim Eloheka is, and this is the way it begins. Why it ends? I am Elohim, your Elohim, who liberated you from the land of Egypt, from the house of servitude. Uh, there shall not be to you other Elohim. You shall not make for yourselves a carved thing or any formed thing that is in the heavens above. Or that is on the earth below, or that is in the waters under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, you shall not serve them. Anoch Elohim Eloheka. I am Elohim, your Elohim. That's the first commandment it is. Uh, that we have here in the Moses scroll. And I want to return before we sign off and just uh, highlight because it, it sort of goes. I noticed the way you we read that. I noticed that the way you read that. You emphasized a certain word in the Moses scroll that is unlike anything in any other document from antiquity. So glad that you just said that. <laughs> yeah. Because it's such an important word, Ross. I am Elohim, your Elohim, who liberated you from the land of Egypt, from the house of liberated. And this goes to a little bit to what we were saying in the beginning of this program. Liberated. It blew my mind to find out that this is not used anywhere in this form in the Tanakh uh, nor is the root used in the Pentateuch. Um, it, it, I was surprised, Ross. I would have thought this would be everywhere. I would have thought that this, I assumed that this theme would, would have been, you know, a primary theme throughout. But you pointed out to me that another word is used. What, what's used in its stead? It's, it's based on the root yatsad, to go forth. So, so if we look at Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20, we get this word, uh, and it caused you to go forth. It's in the causative form. Uh, I am the Lord your God who caused you to go forth from the land of Egypt. So it does indicate an exodus, if you will, a departure mm -hmm. from the land. But this mm -hmm. is unique. This is very unique. In fact, it's so unique that it caused a lot of the detractors to say, eh, this, this word throws us off because we don't have any evidence for it in, like you said, it in is the unattested. It's unattested, mm. but it clearly does have a meaning, and grammatically, it's correct. But their mm. their their charge was is that because it was unattested, because it didn't match the ten words that they were familiar with in both of the contradicting forms we have it in Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy five, that mm. it can't be authentic. In fact. In fact, Franz Delich is a great biblical scholar from the period. One mm. of the things that he said when he first saw this, he saw it in 1878, he saw a transcription of this, from Shapira to Schlotman. And one of the things he said was, you tell Shapira, don't mess with our Ten Commandments. Mm. See, you, you can't... Yeah. You know, and Schlotman wrote a letter to Shapiro and he said, how dare you suggest that this contradicting thing is authentic? Because why? Simply because it doesn't agree with his received Ten Commandments, which again, I want the listeners to hear this. The two versions that we have in our Pentateuch, they don't even agree with each other. Mm. And I tell you, Ross, th this word liberated that's used here it's a threatening word to anyone who would seek to control a people, to anyone who would seek to be an authoritarian over a people. This is a threatening word to them. Uh, it, it, it's the difference between um, I, I am God who freed you mm -hmm. as opposed to I am God who brought you out of. And that's the way that it's usually translated in uh, in English Bibles, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, to uh, I, I brought you out. And you have to ask yourself the question, uh, from the perspective that the Moses scroll is the original, what reason, what motivation would there be <laughs> to change that, to make that subtle difference from liberated you, to free, who freed you from Egypt, 
to, oh, I brought you out of Egypt. Yeah. Um, you, moreover, you... If, 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 the, if the Moses scroll is a forgery, why would the forger replace this particular word with one not used in the Pentateuch at all? That's, that's exactly right. And we should, we should let people know that this is a Hebrew word, and it is mm. widely attested in the Hebrew Bible, in the Masoretic text, not in the Pentateuch, mm. but it occurs quite a few times, and it's generally associated with this idea of freedom uh, or bringing about freedom. And the root word there in Hebrew is chet and resh, chet resh. So these these two letters are widely attested, and, and we, we might even go into oh, this the more is, next yes, yeah. week. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's right. Now, just before we go, this is this is the thing to think about. The difference between uh, the definitions of these two, it's the difference between geographical extraction yeah. and the state of liberation. The subtle difference in definition would, as I mentioned, would be a threat to another, would be authoritarian. Um, a people brought out are not necessarily divinely endowed with freedom and the rights afforded them from that freedom, right? Yep, but right. a people who are freed from are liberated. And this, my friends, is a libertarian document. We're going to be getting more uh, into the 10 words and uh, expounding upon this very first commandment in our next program because there's so much more to go on in uh, the prohibition of idolatry here. We don't have time to do that. Now, any parting thoughts, Ross? Yeah, just just people need to be ready because first of all, you're going to see a set of 10 words which I believe is authentic and very ancient. And I think it's going to be, this is the core of the document that we have here. This is the covenant. Mm. And the interesting thing about it is you're going to see a difference in order between what we see here, what we see in the canonical text, but you're also going to be blown away, I think, by uh, several features among them that this is the only document that I know of from antiquity where the ten words are communicated in the first person. Not like that in Deuteronomy 5. Not like that in Exodus Mm -hmm. 20. Only here. I'm excited. That is it for this week. Dear listeners, in the meantime, have a great one. Have a beautiful week. Thank you.